0: You are listening to Climate Now. I'm Catherine Gorman.
1: And I'm James Lawler. And today we are going to talk about climate change risk to the housing market. How large are these risks? Where do they occur? And who is actually holding the risk?
0: And joining us to explore these questions is Amin Ozad. He's a professor of economics at HEC in Montreal, where he has an endowed research professorship in urban and real estate economics. He is also a senior fellow in the 21st Century Initiative at Johns Hopkins University. I mean, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today.
2: Thank you very much for the invitation to speak. Really appreciate it.
0: So the first question that we ask all of our guests is always the same. How did you get where you are? Tell us about what your, your journey, your path has been.
2: Sure. Um, I started working on housing and, and real estate after the great financial crisis. I sort of graduated in 2008 um, and everybody was talking about this massive fault line in the the u.s economy uh, that is that was uh, uh, mortgage credit movies were made about this and talking about the big short uh, and sort of this topic which was arcane and technical suddenly uh, came to the forefront and everybody was talking about Uh, mortgage-backed securities, and Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. And you felt that by uh, studying this topic in detail, you were contributing to um, helping uh, the economy become more resilient, uh, and you were helping homeowners sort of go through what was, you know, historically one of the largest uh, crises uh, in the world and U.S. economy. and so, so I sort of, you know, spent um, a good decade uh, studying these issues, uh, being a, a research uh, fellow at the International Monetary Fund. And, you know, a little bit like now when there is a reckoning that climate is one of the most important issues, there was a reckoning back then that housing was suddenly something that people didn't know so much about. They thought that they were housing economists and that was just a a separate category. You know, you were a housing economist. And I was like, everybody wants to be a housing economist. And I I feel that uh, this is also happening with with, uh, climate change. Then I looked at the evidence and I looked at the uh, impact uh, this could have on uh, households' uh, uh, ability to retire uh, households consumption well-being uh, and then i realized that you know climate risk uh could uh uh, uh be a, a crisis that compounds uh, a sort of a housing crisis um and and that's when i sort of realized that this was not something that
1: was a small problem let's actually start there C- can you tell us the size of the mortgage market today how much money has been lent to individuals to purchase their homes in the United States? We're talking about uh, $11 uh, trillion uh, of mortgage debt. So that's a huge dollar amount. Can you put $11 trillion into context for us? I can relate this to uh,
2: the total wealth because
1: mm-hmm. I think that's sort of
2: okay. uh, the, the way to represent this. Is okay. there's about 100 trillion dollars of of wealth according to uh, uh, the Federal Reserve. Okay. So we're talking about and the real estate wealth that is, mm-hmm. you know, the, the equity. If we add up the equity to the debt, we end up uh, to about 30 trillion dollars of real estate wealth. So it's about a third of the total wealth of the U.S. But right. A third looks small, but for the median household It's not real small. Is, real estate wealth <laughs> is seventy percent
1: of their wealth. Right. That's still a huge number then in terms of total outstanding loans that have been used for property acquisition. Um What percentage of that has been deployed in areas that are at risk of damage due to climate change? I mean, that's that's
2: a really important question. And let me sort of try to go through the the way we can measure the exposure to risk. Um, I started by looking at exposure to hurricane storm uh, surges. Um, So uh, they're very good models for this uh, developed by NOAA. This is a model that's been uh, used at least since the 1970s, benchmarked uh, against uh, um, actual hurricane storm surges. And uh, uh, the reports, there's a scientist called Jelinyansky who's who's contributed to this. uh, um, He suggests that they are uh, correct within Uh, plus minus 20 percent hurricane storm surges can be dramatically damaging because you know if you look at the simulations for a category five hurricane in New Orleans hurricane storm surges of 20 feet or more uh, above ground level that's very significant Uh, so that's one type of risk Um, and so that's what I started with Um, another type of risk is more slow moving Uh, And it's sea level rise. Uh, And we have the uh, precise granular um, maps also from NOAA of the impact of sea level rise on on neighborhoods, neighborhood by neighborhood. So for hurricane storm surges, I find that uh, the order of magnitude is about 10% of all mortgage originations in the U.S. are in hurricane storm surge areas that is at least a foot of a uh, hurricane storm surge.
0: Let's talk about FEMA flood maps. Those are the maps that are used, I think most commonly, to decide who needs insurance, what kind of insurance they need, flood insurance, what sort of storm surges you might be experiencing.
2: Now, FEMA flood maps, uh, and, and I think it's sort of a consensus now, uh, are um, too thin, too small, too... Uh, 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 And so just to give you an idea, there was a report uh, of the city of Houston that suggested that more than 50% of the damages during Hurricane Harvey in 2017 was outside of uh, the what is called the 100-year floodplain. Which is uh, the FEMA designation for their maps, right? Which is the FEMA designation for their maps. So there's really been a move towards saying, You know, we need independent measures of uh, 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 flood risk um, that is not solely dependent on FEMA flood maps. And there's and and one of the things I have to mention is that there's tremendously high quality human capital, extremely skilled and devoted uh federal uh, uh employees who've developed fantastic modeling and i think there there needs to be a little more sort of interagency communication to uh sort of you know pull together all the knowledge do we have you know if, if i think about the u.s army corps of engineers NOAA, usgs uh, fema uh hud uh okay. yeah, yeah the thing is that i think a lot of us and that includes me we work in silos uh and so we need to sort of come together to to get a sense of you know what's the best right. way to measure the exposure
1: and in this particular so just to recap then you 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 find that roughly 10% of the mortgage of the outstanding mortgages are you know have been used to purchase properties in these NOAA flood NOAA storm uh, surge areas. Is that, is that right? That's right. So the number is some hurricane risk about a trillion, about a trillion dollars, 1.1 trillion.
2: That's right. That's, that's Mm -hmm. about a trillion dollars a year. The number is actually slightly increasing over time. So Mm -hmm. if we measure, so if we, if we look at the evolution of the share of mortgages in those areas between 2012 and 2018, Mm -hmm. uh, it's increased between, uh, 9 point something percent to 12 uh, percent. Uh,
1: and this is annual mortgage origination, which we see to have increased by about three percentage points over the last decade in coastal areas. Th- that's right. Exactly. So
2: that's uh, over six years, 2012, 2018. I see. Uh, and, and that's, uh, these are not. Pro- proprietary or confidential data; these are uh, sort of publicly available data that are reported uh, through uh, the Community Reinvestment Act. So it, it was; uh, uh, it's been collected since 1975, uh, and um, uh, it's mandated for all uh, lenders that have a minimum threshold of assets or a minimum number of originated mortgages. Uh, So it's a very comprehensive
1: uh, uh, data set. So my next question is based on your research, um, if a property is in a coastal area that is susceptible to storm surges and sea level rise, how does that change the likely default rate for such properties? Is there an increase in default rates for those properties versus, you know, baseline?
2: So what I have to say is something dramatic has happened since Hurricane Katrina. So Hurricane Katrina was a tipping point in the sense that uh, in 2005 and in the next year, uh, the hurricane triggered insurance, flood insurance payments. Uh, And so what we see is that, in fact, the amount of household debt decreased after Hurricane Katrina and there were more prepayments of mortgages. Uh, and um, that, that seems to be sort of a mild impact because that's not defaults, you know, that's prepayments. Uh, and so there's an established literature uh, discussing this. And so when I started uh, working on this issue that seemed to have been the consensus, but then we observed and the industry observed uh, as well that there was uh, a decline in the take-up of uh, flood insurance policies that's been documented by Carolyn Kowski uh, and uh, a, a decline in take up in the number of flood insurance policies and in the dollar amount that is covered by uh, flood insurance. Um, and uh, since, since then, what we've seen is that after Hurricane Harvey, there was an increase in default rates. Uh, so we've moved from a world where people are insured and they get flood insurance payments and their debt decreases to a world where there's increased default. In 2010, uh, uh, default rates increased by about six percentage points, uh, from six and a half from two to eight and a half percent. Uh, and uh, uh, when after a hurricane, and that answers your question, we see that there uh, increases in default rates uh, of a couple of percentage points. Uh, and I think you in know, those, as areas. In you those in, areas, in those That's areas, right. okay. Oh, it's mm-hmm. very important. Uh, what you're saying is super important. It's like in those areas affected by the hurricane relative to uh, the default rate in other areas. So it's really teasing out what is due to uh, the hurricane storm surge to what is due to Uh, borrower credit worthiness to what is due to, you know, just take an example is that after Hurricane Katrina, Katrina was in 2005. So uh, 2007 was the beginning of the crisis. So it's really important to look at the impact of a hurricane separately from the impact of the evolution of the market. Same thing, Sandy, happened in 2012. You know, the the mortgage market at that time is, is in a different state. So we really need to make sure we're comparing comparables and that's what we're doing really carefully by looking at millions Millions of uh, uh, mortgages, we have about 70 to 75% of the mortgage market that we cover.
0: Why is that? Why are there fewer people signing up for flood insurance? Have, I mean, have flood insurance companies changed their coverage somehow?
2: There are a few things happening. Um, one of them is uh, that flood insurance has become unaffordable in some areas uh, because the, the what we call the fair premium. Uh, which is the premium that uh, balances the budget of the National Flood Insurance Program, that fair premium should be much higher. And so, so premium have increased since uh, Hurricane Katrina um, uh, because of reforms of the National Flood Insurance Program. And so in some areas, the flood insurance payment is the size of, a mortgage, of the mortgage payment. And so, Uh, There is a question, as you know, do I take a mortgage where flood insurance is required? And that's typically an agency mortgage. Or do I take a mortgage where flood insurance is not required and I'm going to sort of have a more affordable mortgage, but then I'm not going to be insured in case of uh, a a flood. Um, The second aspect, and that's harder to document, uh, but I've heard this from Uh, members of uh, staffs at the US Congress, uh, senators, staff told me that there's a little bit of a paradox because they go to uh, industry presentations that say, servicers uh, are are in charge of of monitoring that flood insurance is is paid. And there's uh, servicers are saying, you know, flood insurance is is paid. but. When we look at the numbers uh, in, in, in peer-reviewed work, we see that flood insurance take-up is declining. Uh, and so what could be happening, and that's a hypothesis, is that servicers are not shaking along the entire life of the mortgage that people keep paying uh, f- for flood insurance. Uh, so, so, so we have at least two mechanisms. And then there's a third mechanism, which is that when premia are unaffordable, if I buy a home that is outside of the 100-year floodplain, Flood insurance is not required. And uh, and if it's expensive, well, I may just try to sort of bank on the fact that a, a hurricane is not going to hit my home.
0: I mean, what role do Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac play in all of this?
2: So uh, Fannie and Freddie were uh, created uh, to ensure a broad access to homeownership for uh, Americans. And uh, they are very large uh, companies, Uh, we were talking about uh, the fact that there's something like a trillion dollars of originations a year, they guarantee about 65% of the market. So they are extremely large uh, companies. And American access to uh, mortgage credit would be dramatically different without Fannie and Freddie. They ensure that lenders are paid regardless of the default of households when uh, households borrow uh, to buy a home. So you can see here there's there's something interesting because the insured lenders are paid. Well, does that benefit lenders or does that benefit borrowers, right? Well, it benefits borrowers indirectly because it makes it easier for a household to borrow uh, to buy a home. Uh, it uh, uh, makes interest rates lower, uh, it increases approval rates uh, for uh, mortgages, it increases pre-approval rates uh, as well. So it's also a double-edged sword. We see we stabilized access to mortgage credit, but does that mean that we're going to give mortgage credit in risky areas? Now, that's the conundrum, uh, is that do, should we make sure that we can get a mortgage in an area that can be flooded? Uh, that's that's, that's the, 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 the sort of the, the crux of the problem, and it's not an easy question.
1: So if I understand this correctly, you have banks and other lenders who are going out and providing these mortgages, originating these mortgages. Uh, but Fannie and Freddie don't actually provide the mortgages directly, right?
2: That's correct, yes.
1: So according to your research, what role do Frannie and Freddie play in terms of changing the behavior of lenders in areas affected by these big billion-dollar natural disasters? Can, can you help us understand that?
2: Right. So the, the mechanism is, is as follows. So uh, a, a lender originates a mortgage uh, and uh, uh, then sells that mortgage to uh, Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac um and Fannie and Freddie transfer that mortgage into a mortgage backed security um uh, there're details here because there's two yeah. steps of securitization <laughs> but mm-hmm. they 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 package it into a mortgage backed security they give the lender back a mor- a, a a share in the mortgage backed security uh and Fannie and Freddie guarantee the loan so Fannie and Freddie uh, gets the payments from the borrower, but the the lender gets the payment from uh, Fanny and Freddie and and the servicers. So the, the lender is, is insured because for the lender, it's as if the borrower was never defaulting on the loan. Mm-hmm. Whereas for Fanny and Freddie, they need to make sure that when the payment doesn't come, they're sort of plugging that gap and uh, making the payment uh, instead of the, the borrower. So what we find, and that's where, uh, the, the, the crux of the issue is, okay. is that, um, lenders see this ability to sell to Fannie and Freddie as a sort of a, a safe option for them. Right. Uh, and so in the aftermath of natural disasters, when lenders sur- suddenly learn that, uh, there are defaults due to hurricane storm surges in some areas, then they start selling those loans to Fannie and Freddie instead of keeping those loans on on their books.
1: Um, And 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 so you found, just to emphasize that, you found a statistically significant change in behavior of lenders in... You know, post disaster scenarios, and you and your colleague described a disaster, these, these quote unquote billion dollar events, so natural disasters that cause a, a billion dollars or more of damage. And you found a st- statistically significant change in behavior of major lenders. So we're talking about big banks selling more, getting more of these off their books and onto the books of Fannie and Freddie, which is effectively, as we know, backstopped by the US taxpayer, right? Yes. So, So the risk is there's a there's a transfer of risk happening between lenders, right? Who should who should be properly pricing this risk in the first place? But you're you're implying that they are not, right? Yes. And transferring that risk onto all of the rest of us. Yes. Yes. Am I capturing that?
2: Okay. That's that's correct. Uh, The since 2008 uh, Housing Economic Recovery Act. Uh, Fannie and Freddie are under conservatorship because they failed and uh, uh, the U.S. government took over the the companies and now the U.S. Treasury has technically what is called a funding commitment. Um, So far, that funding commitment uh, has not required the Treasury to pay Fannie and Freddie. Quite the opposite. In fact, Fannie and Freddie have given money back to the U.S. government and that's something that uh, people uh, tell me about but that that's interesting because that was you know fannie and freddie were profitable companies just before uh experiencing a large decline in their earnings so the fact that today they are actually giving money back to the u.s government is not a sign that they're necessarily um uh, not facing a crisis in 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 the future so uh, yeah, so so we do find a statistically significant impact of uh, natural disasters on uh, the propensity of lenders to originate and distribute loans to uh, the uh, agencies um, instead of originating and holding uh, these uh, these loans um, and. Billion-dollar disasters, as you rightly pointed out, they include Hurricane Katrina, uh, which was the, uh, the event with the largest amount of damages. And they also include uh, Hurricane Sandy. So it's maybe interesting for the audience to know that uh, an analysis, I think, was published in Nature, uh, did uh, a, a costing of the damages from events for uh, a century. And the top 15 events are all hurricanes. So so the reason why we focus on hurricanes is because they're sort of the first over problem here.
0: And when we're talking about these billion-dollar events, how are Fannie and Freddie now taking into account climate-related risks in their operation? I mean, as they come out of conservatorship, do we expect there to be further changes, evolution?
2: So uh, there's a short answer and a long answer. The short answer is uh, the tool that was used so far was flood insurance. Uh, So when you sort of see at the hearings, you know, the, the typical answer is that, uh, flood insurance is required for, uh, mortgages, um, that are guaranteed by the agencies. Um, but there's a range of other tools that they also use. Uh, one of them is mortgage insurance. So that's separate from flood insurance, mortgage insurance, uh, is. Uh, supplied by insurance companies that uh, make sure that those mortgages are paid on time now there's some technicalities here that make it a slightly problematic mortgage insurance can be dropped by a homeowner when its equity um, reaches 20 percent um, so that's something i'm sort of working on is is understanding how that affects the uh, uh the the uh, fannie, the agencies fannie and Freddie. Uh, the other problem is that the uh, uh, private mortgage insurers did fairly poorly during the great financial crisis. Uh, so um, part of the reason is that mortgage insurance is not structured in a way that protects the agencies against reimbursement risk. So, and there's a lot of dollars that need to be paid by insurance companies. Do they have the, these dollars on their balance sheet? That's not
0: Okay. Can you also explain to us this product Fannie and Freddie now use called Credit Risk Transfers?
2: CRTs, Credit Risk Transfers, what are they? They are um, a product that Fannie and Freddie started in 2013 to insure themselves against uh, the risk and by sort of doing something better than mortgage insurance. And uh, the program was successful until 2019. Uh, there was there was a large increase in credit risk transfers. So that's transferring the risk back to hedge funds, uh, investment banks, uh, people who sort of want to take the risk, you know, they want this sort of high yield investment. And so we transfer them instead of having that on the uh, box of Fannie and Freddie and those to US taxpayer, we make sure that it's uh, insured by hedge funds and investment banks and all that. Now, um, this was going well until 2019. Uh, but there are two issues. One is we discovered in our work, uh, it's in the latest version of our work, that Fannie and Freddie selectively transfer risk and they transfer less of the climate risk. Uh, that's what we call positive selection. Positive selection is actually not very positive. It's, it's, it's that actually Fannie and Freddie are keeping climate risk on their books. This may be a, an unintended effect of the transparency of credit risk transfers. So the, the investors can see which mortgages are in these risky areas. So they're like, they're probably, you know, they could be consistent with a mechanism in which transparency, in fact, hurts the market. So I know there's a lot of conversation about transparency and climate risk on balance sheets. You know, there's the um, uh, Bloom, uh, Michael Bloomberg uh, chairing the TCFD and, and accounting rules and climate risk. But, but I think we should be mindful that in some cases, transparency is bad. And then CRT issuance, that was a big surprise, collapsed in 2020. And we, we sort of uh, think that it's due to new capital rules that disincentivize uh, the issuance of CRTs. Uh, and, and so basically in the second quarter of uh, 2020, there was Fannie Mae issued zero uh, credit uh, risk transfers. Uh, and we think that it's, that it's unfortunate because that's precisely the moment when Fannie and Freddie should be... Transferring risk uh, back to the private sector.
1: So your research shows that Fannie and Freddie are carrying risk that they haven't properly priced. Could we be looking at another financial crisis similar to what we experienced in 2008 as a result of that?
2: Yeah. So the the big debate, is, uh, another big debate, and I think now it's sort of overlapping mm-hmm. the climate debate is is the capitalization of the agencies, and so there's there's a question as to what is the appropriate level of capitalization because by uh, private sector standards, they're highly leveraged. And so even a suggestion of 5% of capital is seen as, as a larger number than they've been used to. Uh, and so that, that means that the buffers are uh, a little slim. I don't know of work that looks at the impact of uh, climate risk on the capitalization debate, hmm. but that certainly you've anticipated what is uh, one of the trends, I think. Um, in this
1: debate. So zooming back out in an attempt to tease out what the main problems are that you and your colleague have discovered, it sounds like we have a problem on the flood maps where we have an out-of-date and grossly underestimating definition of where the risk physically lies. So that's one point. And then we have this other issue involving transfer of risk, which is being done sort of selectively to shield these large, you know, mortgage originators from the risk. And those uh, transactions are being conducted at, at prices that don't match the risk that those instruments actually carry. So on that second piece, how frequently is this happening? Who are the largest offenders in terms of, you know, the, the banks and other originators that are doing this?
2: Yeah. So I'll bring a little bit of nuance. I think, first of all, we need to uh, say both bank and non-bank lenders. So for instance, Quicken Loans is a, a company that it, that doesn't take deposits but greatly benefits from Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac's uh, guarantees. Uh, and in particular, because they don't have deposits. So in fact, they, they're originating practically no jumbo loan because they need to sell their mortgages uh, quickly to Fannie and Freddie. Um, the, the conundrum is actually a little more complex than it looks like, because here is something that will s- surprise you, but you know, it, it looks surprising, but it's not that much. It is not clear that we want to price flood risk in mortgage guarantees. Why is that? Now, if you go to uh, US Congress and you say, you know, I've had this great podcast with Amin and and I think we should price flood risk. The the answer they're going to give you is uh, that people who live in areas affected by hurricane storm surges have lower income, are more likely to be minorities, have are less likely to have health insurance uh and uh they are in fact underprivileged households so should we reduce access to mortgage credit for uh these households staffers have told me this they've told me look this is this could be redlining so hmm. So, so, so here, so, so, so there's a trade-off, and, and this is a complex trade-off. The trade-off is that if we price uh, flood risk in mortgage guarantees, we're gonna reduce access to mortgage credit for these families. Now, are we? Is is it good for their welfare because they could be more exposed to future floods?
0: Well, we know they're more exposed to future floods, right? We know that statistically, these are households that are just more vulnerable, right?
2: Yes, so that's that's but but you see that 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 is uh, there's sort of something that we mm-hmm. need to solve here mm-hmm. that we need to sort of help households transition to safer areas. Uh, and so, uh, you know, and I think about a couple of you know policy avenues that are beyond the paper that were that we just authored, but you know uh, FHA gives zero percent down payment loans for uh, households affected by natural disasters. That is, and what is FHA? With, That's a oh, uh, <laughs> Federal Housing Administration. Uh-huh. Uh, they provide loans for uh, lower income households. Uh, typically, um, uh, I hope three percent down payment. Um, and uh, in case of families affected by natural disasters, it's brought down. It's it's brought down to zero. Uh, and one thing we could do is ensure that households uh, take these FHA loans in areas that are on safer ground, that are on higher ground, that are less affected by hurricane storm surges. This is you know one policy idea. There there are many others, but I think we need to think about transitioning. Uh, households to to make sure that you know it's very hard to leave a neighborhood. You know, there's the church, there's friends, there's family, there's a lot of social ties. So so it's not like you know it, it's it's not like a person is a singleton and can just decide to go wherever. Uh, I think we need to help communities transition to places that are safer, more protected. Here is an interesting fact that I think is really, really important is that only 3% of uh, land in the US is urban. So the US is on first order is an empty uh, country and most of the population is stacked on the coasts. And so these are where the jobs are. Uh, This is where uh, the amenities are. Uh, And the question is, you know, lenders are giving these loans in part because people want to live there they they get access to jobs and 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 a number of amenities so the the i think the 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 big question is is how do we sort of uh manage the retreat uh, away from risky areas and you see some private companies doing that already so you know goldman sachs for instance moved its back office operations away from downtown Manhattan and to uh, New Jersey on safer ground. Uh, And so uh, they have understood that, yeah, it's okay. You know, we're going to keep meeting our clients with fancy suits in downtown Manhattan, but all the critical confidential information that for operations is going to be on safer ground. If Goldman Sachs can do it, I think, you know, we, I want to think about helping those who can't adapt like Goldman Sachs. I don't have an answer to you as to how we're going to address this conundrum of uh, pricing risk without hurting uh, lower income families. But that's definitely, I think, the most important question.
0: I mean, thank you so much for your time, obviously so much more to unpack and explore here such a pressing topic. As you say, the social justice implications alone are so critical. Thank you so much for your time today. We really, really appreciate it.
2: Thank you for the invitation. Thank you.
1: Yes. Thanks, Amin.
0: For more on this topic, you can check out the links in our show notes to Amin's research and other related papers. You could also head to our website, Climatenow.com to check out our other interviews, watch our videos, sign up for our newsletter. And if you want to get in touch with us, email us at contact at or tweet at us at we are climate now. And we hope you'll join us for our next conversation.